This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. This week, Gregor Campbell looks at how garbage used to be dumped on streets and reserves. Bill Southworth interviews Councillor David Benson-Pope about demolition by neglect. And Alison Breeze visits one of our grand homes. Then finally, Gregor reports on the peculiar habits of a Port Chalmers photographer. We are used to an efficient rubbish collection, but it paid to hold your nose in earlier days as rubbish was scattered in streets and reserves. Gregor has been looking at the stories on this in an early crusading newspaper. In my small recollection, the New Zealand Truth was the weekly paper that many people read and few confessed to doing so. In its early years, it was a different beast. It was still salacious and provocative, but its political direction was very much left of centre and it was committed to defending the underdog and challenging privilege and hypocrisy. And it pulled few punches with its language. Here, from 1911, is Truth's exposition of the state of certain Dunedin streets. Dua, dirty Dunedin, some stinking streets, playing with public health, jam tin avenues from Truth's Dunedin rep. Evidently, carting rubbish and garbage out of its backyard and dumping it into the public reserves or the streets under the impression that it is cleaning the town is a deep-seated, filthy habit with the city fathers of Dunedin, and the sooner they recognise the fact, the better for the health of the community. Some months ago, Truth drew attention to the filthy rubbish tip which dirty Dunedin had started in the Oval, a place which is ultimately to be a playground for Dunedin's children. Truth told the porky Scots of the Holy City, then that if they knew anything about the elements of sanitation and hygiene, they would immediately stop filling in the oval with filthy, festering rubbish and garbage and substitute good earth, even at the cost of many saxpences. What Truth advised and complained of was only brought up at last week's meeting of the council, and then, with characteristic canniness, nothing was done in the matter. Evidently, the city grandmothers have not got the interests of the people at heart, so Truth will proceed to give Mayor Burnett and his unwieldy council some more facts and advice about their dirty city. Truth had, a few weeks ago, to draw attention to a dirty hash foundry in the city, and the public health department suddenly got an unusual fit of energy on, and that hash foundry is now clean, and the rats therein are few. So... In the hope that the Public Health Department will have another fit of energy, Truth will describe a dirty area of land covered with houses and situated in thickly populated South Dunedin. Just past Jimmy Miller's railway workshops and adjacent to the Carisbrook ground, there are three streets which form three sides of a square, with Cargill Road as the fourth side, and these three streets called by the historic names of Burns, Neville and McLashan, are a sight to make the average medical man or sanitary inspector weep. All three streets are closely built on both sides. Truth reporter had a look at Burns Street first 
and reckons the national poet ought to rise from his grave and break the neck of the party who had the howling cheek to name such a dirty apology for a street after him. Burn Street has been formed of rubbish, rags, bones and bottles, some of which still ornament the sides of the street. On the left-hand side of the road or street, there is an open, festering, shallow drain. It was carrying soap-suddy water and green slime, and there was all sorts of rubbish in it. Neville Street loudly shrieks the fact that it has been formed out of the miscellaneous rubbish taken out of Dunedin's backyard, foul run, and ash bucket. There is no formation and no metalling. Deep ruts cover the available portion for vehicular traffic, and the street must be a veritable quagmire when the weather is wet. On the left side of the street, there is a large heap of boulders, which must be very dangerous at night time, and which, if they belonged to a private person, would land them in large trouble with the Dunedin City Council. The street is also gaily festooned at the sides with weeds and jam tins. However, McGlashan Street is the worst of the lot, by a long way. Two open drains and a ditch ornament the sides of it, and these drains are a disgrace to modern civilization. They extend the full length of the street, some 200 yards, and are covered with green, oozing slime. Also, it is evident that some, if not the whole of the houses in this salubrious street, have their sinks and baths draining into these open drains. By the appearance of the drains, it is evident they have no fall and do not drain into any sewer. The dirty water simply remains there until such time as it percolates into the soil or evaporates into the air. These drains must be a frightful menace to public health in the summertime and must be a splendid hotbed for breeding the germs of typhoid, scarlet fever, etc. In fact, every zymotic disease to which the flesh is air. Tins of every description known, kerosene, jam, sardine and meat, gracefully raise their heads amidst the rank grass and weeds which ornament the sides of the drains. And at one portion, there was a unique collection of old boots, an old shovel blade, two ancient festering sacks, a lot of rusty iron, broken plates and bottles. And this is in a public street, in the city of Dunedin, which boasts of its municipal enterprises. In no other town, not even a small backblocks one on the wilds of the North Island, would such a state of affairs be tolerated. The idea of filling up streets with rubbish is one that would only commend itself to the canny, economical, cheese-pairing city grandmothers and other civic authorities of holy Dunedin, and it is characteristic of them. They would sooner have the people live in dirt and unhealthy conditions in these stinking streets than spend the few pounds necessary to drain them and make them properly habitable. After the Oval Affair, Truth doesn't expect anything in the way of improvement from the Dunedin City Corporation, but hereby requests the Public Health Department to see into these matters and firmly put the screw of compulsion on the dirty Dunedin grandmothers. Ah, good old New Zealand truth, always up for a bit of muckraking. Who of us who have walked those streets to Carisbrook Stadium would have guessed at the strata we were traversing? 
These days, of course, what was rubbish in a jam tin avenue is now a valuable primary archaeological resource, just waiting for the demolition of a building and digging by the professionals before it is all built over again. I am the squeaky clean Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Buildings in Lower Princess Street have been allowed to deteriorate to a stage where the owners say there is nothing they can do to fix up the classic frontages. But why were they allowed to deteriorate without the council putting a stop to it? Bill Southworth put this question to DCC councillor David Benson Pope. David, why were the buildings in Princess Street allowed to deteriorate year by year without the council intervening? Well, we tried several times. Every time I asked... And that was multiple times, I'm sad to say. I got the response that we were trying to encourage the people who had the consents to carry them out. But beyond that, other than taking direct action against them, which is pretty rare and problematic, I mean, privately in the courts, the council, the power to do anything when a building is not occupied as all the really problematic ones weren't, is constrained. That's the answer that I've had for a long time, but I now discover there's a further legal opinion that has been received by council, which suggests, at least perhaps not strong enough, um, but makes it clear that it might be that the council interpretation of the law has been a wee bit conservative, and that we have had the capacity to be more aggressive in intervening even when a building's not occupied. And that's what is part of the last conversation we've had about this, well, I don't know, six weeks ago. At the same time as we have already submitted to government a select committee about looking at rules around the Building Act and so on with a view to asking for more powers to be given to local authorities to stop the bad behaviour that goes on. That's rather interesting because demolition by neglect is something obviously the council would like to stop. But as I understand it, there is a possibility that it couldn't get a bylaw that would give it the power to do anything. Now, isn't it just a matter of going to government and saying, look, we're a heritage city. This is a major problem for us. Give us the legislative power to put in a proper bylaw. That's what our submission does. We have had mixed reports and, and opinions about bylaws. I, for the life of me, can't understand how Clutha have managed a bylaw which applies to the main streets of Tapanui and Lawrence, but they do admit it's quite hard to implement and the question of whether they've actually got powers to fine is an open question. So the bylaw pathway looks to be a problem at the moment and beyond our powers, but that's why we've asked. I think that's the solution because until such time as we can use some sticks as well as some carrots, and I'll come back to the carrots, we're we're going to see a continuation of the bad behaviour, not just the Princess Street behaviour, but the appalling behaviour by a a respected hotel-owning company in Dunedin, Arkwright's, Fable Hotel own Arkwright's, that building, Uh, and that's an absolute disgrace. That's Uh, the one in Lower High Street, is it? Yeah, the one in in the exchange. Um, Exchange, oh, okay. Fable used to be Wayne's. The Arkwright's part is the back of that block, uh, the top of the bottom block of High Street, uh, which is an absolute disgrace, propped up by scaffolding on the footpath, obstructing the way, looking a complete eyesore. 
can I, can I go back a step? We talked about bylaws. I've also tried uh, to see if we could enforce or at least charge property owners who obstructed the roadway. Technically, the roadway is defined by the agency as building line to building line, so it includes the footpaths. And you know, while we have to give permission for them to put scaffolding up, they're nonetheless still obstructing the roadway. And council has asked several times for staff to consider using the transport regulations as a vehicle to doing something about what we're concerned about, but they've never really explored that either. So I'm hopeful that the last set of conversations council had with staff about this will lead to a change in attitude to being more aggressive about using whatever tools we can conjure up or whichever avenues we can find, and I've just mentioned this one with the Transport Act, to actually discourage the poor behaviour. You know, I talked about carrots and sticks. We do try to cooperate with people and encourage them to, to good solutions. Best one I can think of is the Crown Clothing Building, which is the grey West Pack on the corner of Frederick Street. That was earthquake prone and was rebuilt significantly funded by council in the 80s, early 90s, because of its importance on a corner site like that. And that's an element that's part of this, not just heritage protection, but on big intersections, you know, the the keystone buildings are a really important part of our streetscape. And that was one, and that was put back up, and everyone thinks it's original, which is fine. And that's why the Arkwrights one's so important, because it's on a corner like that, and we don't want to lose a building there, or we'll end up with exactly what we have on the old Century site, for those people who remember that, where the Century Theatre uh, was earthquake-prone. Permission was granted for demolition of everything except the facade. Uh, but guess what? The building was taken down in such a way the facade became dangerous. It wasn't supported, and they came along and said, this is a risk, we have to take it down, and we've got no choice but to grant that consent. Is it possible that that was done deliberately? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, But I would never suggest such a thing, you understand. You know, and that's the core of the demolition by neglect problem is that because we are so limited in what we can do, people play the game and bite the bullet of no income from these buildings while they quietly deteriorate and eventually have to be knocked over. Coming to the role of Dunedin as a heritage centre, for an outsider it's a bit strange why the local MPs and the council haven't got together. I mean, you've conducted a campaign about the hospital. Mm -hmm. What about a campaign about saving our heritage buildings? Well, I think our record's pretty good. I'm not saying that I'm proud of our performance around these other places like the Princess Street buildings, but the Heritage Fund puts a lot of public money with support of the community into helping people make appropriate improvements, including earthquake strengthening, fire protection and so on to heritage buildings. We managed in a separate campaign to save the courthouse and the railway station. In fact, back in the day, I uh, signed the sale and purchase for the railway station. It cost us a dollar, the building, uh, but the land under it was somewhat more expensive, you understand. But the, the subsequent campaign to save the courthouse or keep the court using it was very successful. So I don't think there's any doubt about the attitude either from the council or from the community. 
But you're right, around the edges, especially with less prominent buildings, people are unfortunately getting away with bad behaviour and we find it very difficult to do anything about it. Yes, I think you're probably indicating what they call character buildings, buildings that Mm. don't fall within the purview of uh, heritage uh, listing, but uh, lovely houses. Uh, One thinks of in Union Street, the university recently demolished a beautiful old house there. No one stopped them. They just went ahead and did it and didn't notify it. What about bringing in some regulations about retaining character buildings? I know the buildings you refer to. I can't tell you offhand about the zoning issues in that area, but there are some areas, particularly on the city rise, for example, or or adjacent to heritage precincts, where there's a category of building called character contributing buildings and they have a higher level of protection and when it comes down to it though these are judgments made by staff or by hearings panels about applications to do whatever I think we're probably better in terms of our protections than most other places but that's not to say we're good enough yet. And finally isn't there another problem on the horizon that if they go ahead with intensive housing in the cities and allowing three-storied buildings to be built where once there was was a simple old house. Won't that start to destroy the look of Dunedin? I think that's an issue right throughout the country. But I think so is the shortage of housing. And whatever does happen is very unlikely to override the maximum height limits that are in our plan anyway. So three storeys within the current height plan, depending on what area it is, is no different from two storeys in the same sort of area. If you see what I mean, you know, there are overriding rules in different zones about the maximum height. It's not as if things are going to suddenly spring up above what is currently approved, as far as I can see what any legislation might do. But isn't there a tendency with these sorts of developments for some of them to be rather cheap and nasty? Yeah, that's always a risk. I think a lot of the townhouses that, and there's been a lot of apartments detached and semi-detached built out south in particular, but not just there recently because of cheaper land. They look pretty attractive at the moment. Whether they're of a quality that's going to last, only time will tell, really. And I think that's that's pretty much a buyer-beware situation. I know the um, activities and the cities involved in some of those jointly with other agencies, particularly in terms of extending our uh, elderly persons' housing stock, we're pretty careful about the quality of the build. In fact, the, the latest block of elderly persons' housing, community housing that we built, is all to the passive house standard, you know, which is the top standard of environmental sustainability, heating performance, insulation, you know, the whole nine yards. David Benson-Pope, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Councillor Benson-Pope was interviewed by Bill Southworth. Now Alison Breeze looks at another grand Dunedin house with an interesting history, named after an obscure Scottish saint. This week we'll be looking at what is called St Duthus House, which is situated on the northern corner of George and Albany Streets. This particular property has led us on a fun game in rabbit holes researching the reason it's called St Duthus House. So we thought this would be an interesting one to focus on just to show you what type of research you can unearth about a house's history. St Duthers' house was designed by James Hislop Architect in 1903 as a residence for Dr Joseph Osborne Kloss, who was one of the earliest graduates from the Otago Medical School. 
1901, Dr. Kloss purchased the property. The current building was built for him as a dwelling and as a doctor's rooms. There was a previous house on the site, but this had been removed. Born in Glasgow, he came to New Zealand at a very early age. Kloss lectured for many years on clinical surgery at the Dunedin Hospital, and he occupied and practised in the house until his death in 1912. The building contractor, Gabriel Hodges, was a former mayor of South Dunedinborough from 1878-1879, and then he was also on the St Kilda Borough Council from 1902 to 1903. The architect was James Hislop, who advertised for a building that was previously on the section to be removed from site in November 1902, before the tender was advertised for a two-storey brick dwelling. After Dr Kloss's death, a number of other people resided at the property, until Mr James John Clark, Mayor of Dunedin and Dunedin City Councillor, lived at the address from 1928 to 1937. He was Mayor and on the council at various stages from 1909 to 1933. And the house became known as St Duthus from this time. So as I said previously, when you're researching, you can go down these little rabbit holes. And while there's no documentary evidence on why the property was named St Duthus, Clark's parents, the mayor of Dunedin, were married in Tane, Scotland, which is this tiny little village. And they were married in 1863. And it just happens that St Duthus is the patron saint of this town. So who was St Duthus? He was a very early Christian figure and he was also known as St. Duthic. His shrine had become very important by 1066. Duthus is thought to have been born in Tain in about 1000 and was educated in Ireland. He went on to become a renowned preacher who attracted a considerable following. He was regarded as sufficiently important for his death to be reported in the Annals of Ulster for the year 1065. Tales of miracles grew up around the memory of Duthus, one story was how, as a boy, he'd been sent to collect hot coals from the local smithy. The smithy simply placed the hot coals in Duthus's lap, whereupon the boy carried them to his master without any ill effect. Duthus became an official saint in 1419, and by the late Middle Ages, his shrine was established as one of the most important places of pilgrimage in all of Scotland. The most famous pilgrim was King James IV who came at least once a year throughout his reign to achieve both spiritual and also political aims. Little can be stated about St Duthus with confidence, and 300 years may have passed between the historical Duthus, if he even existed, and the diffusion of his cult, as it was known, on a national scale. Tain was also known as St Duthic's town in Scottish Gaelic. But back to the Dunedin House. The private hospital at the corner of George and Albany Street opened in 1937 as St Duthus Private Hospital. Mrs Joy Clark, whose knee Mowat, was the head of the hospital and she had been a nurse prior to her marriage to James the Mayor. In 1939, Mrs Clark put the household goods up for auction as the property presumably sold at this time. In 1940, the residence was altered into six flats for a Mr Orton. It became known as St Duthus Flats, or simply St Duthus, and in 1946, the ground floor was altered again and used as doctor surgeries. The upper floor remained as flats. In 1983, the consultation rooms were upgraded and the interior was altered for a group of consultants. So St Duthers House is a registered Category 2 historic place. You can find this story on the Heritage List online at heritage.org.nz.
And this story has been brought to you by Alison Breeze, reporting for Heritage Matters. And finally, Gregor Campbell tells us about an early Port Chalmers photographer with very peculiar habits. In the 1890s, New Zealand passed a law forbidding the sale of indecent and obscene images. The first person to be prosecuted under the law was a Port Chalmers photographer named James de Mouse, who had practised his profession in the town for 30 years. The Tuapeka Times had an unambivalent opinion on the matter. The offence is one of exceptional vileness, and the man who is so sordid and despicable, so lost to decency, so regardless of morality as to traffic in such filth, is undeserving of the slightest consideration of anything less in fact than the full measure of punishment allowed by the law. The only cure for this as a deterrent punishment is a month's stone-breaking and, for a repetition of the offence, a flogging, something that will go close home to the hide of the corrupter of the public morals and surround the business with the largest amount of danger possible. David DeMouse was fined £3 plus costs. A few years later, he was in court again, on the other side of the bench. He had been elected mayor, and the position also made him a justice of the peace. A copy of his photograph can be seen in the Port Chalmers Maritime Museum. Peruse it at your peril. David DeMouse is buried in the Port Chalmers New Cemetery, and not far from his grave is that of William Hay Rennie, another notable photographer. He was found dead in his bed at Papakayo in the Waitaki Valley in 1906. He was a schoolteacher and a vowed woman-hater, and when his house was searched by detectives, a number of photographs were found and immediately destroyed. The New Zealand Truth opined that the photos might have been key evidence, but it was only seven years later, when some of Rennie's possessions were found buried in a nearby field, that the usually fearless publication was able to add more detail to the story. Rennie's destroyed photographs included what we would now call naked selfies. But there was more. He also took photos of local women and printed their faces on images of other naked women. Revenge of some sort was immediately suspected as a motive for the murder, but it was a local man who was charged with the murder, tried and acquitted, and then later charged with burglary and theft with the understanding that whoever had committed those crimes had also been on the premises when the murder had been committed. John Finlay was found guilty and, due to his previous convictions, declared an habitual criminal. He was detained during the pleasure of the Crown, effectively a life sentence. And I am the habitual reporter, Gregor Campbell, for Heritage Matters. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. 
Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the Motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events, and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Check out visitheritage.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.